This is Citizens Gone Wild, and uh, we're going to talk about a few things that I hope they're of interest to you. First is a headline actually from the Wall Street Journal editorial, Joe Biden bows to the teachers union. This is one of the worries that people have that he will give in to many of the um, powers that be at this point. And there's nothing wrong with the teachers union. I belong to one for about 30 years. Uh, my wife belonged to one for about 20 years. Uh, but there is a bit of a problem here in that um, he said that this is gonna be a teacher-oriented administration, a teacher-oriented Department of Education. And the problem there is that you would think it would be a student-oriented uh, education department, a student-oriented administration. And the main thing that bothers people like the Wall Street Journal and myself is there's no choice here. That is, even Obama was for school choice. Even Obama increased federal funds for charter schools. And uh, these cater mainly to black and Hispanic kids, by the way. Whenever you have a vote on charter schools, um, money going to private schools from the federal government, it's the minorities that like it because they are often in the school districts that don't, uh, don't have such good school systems. And it's the teachers union that don't like the money going away elsewhere, which I understand. Nonetheless, seems to me that you should be able to choose your own school. And, you know, if you're for abortion, the right to abortion, then, you know, you're saying something odd. If when you say, well, I have the right to get rid of this critter, but if I have the baby, then I don't have the right to choose the school for them. That doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people, I think. At any rate, he definitely seems to be saying that if he gets elected, there will be a lot less money for choice in schools. I think that could be one place where he's vulnerable, even with minorities. Another thing I wanted to mention today, which is gonna be in the news a lot, uh, because there's a lot of focus on colleges and universities, is uh, the, the campus culture. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal where John Ellis, who's a well-known writer about it, topics like education, says campus culture seizes the streets. And what he means by that is an authoritarian attitude, an authoritarian um, pose is now going from the colleges, which is already pretty authoritarian, to the streets and the way people are acting in the streets now when they're bullying people, when they're shouting people down, when they're shoving people around, kind of reminds them of what's going on on colleges and universities. Uh, on colleges, on universities, I think you have a situation that will remind you if Biden gets it, becomes president of what's gonna go on at the national political level. It is, there's gonna be um, people shouting people down. There's gonna be a lack of free speech. There's gonna be an authoritarian manner in much of what the uh, new way of doing politics is gonna be about. And uh, on college campuses, you already have bullying, shouting people down. In fact, it's beyond that. Administrators no longer even bother trying to hire someone who has anything other than an extreme progressive view of things. 
Um, and you're not going to get a job unless you have an extreme progressive view. And part of that view is that they have hold of the truth. Once you have people that think they've got a stranglehold on the truth, you're not going to have much freedom of speech because what's the point? Why should we let you speak when we already know you're wrong, when we already know we're right? We're going to shout you down. We're going to shove you around, which is what is going on now on college campuses throughout the nation. There's something else that's wrong with education, and that is there seems to be a fair amount of proof. I mean, about five or six really well done studies of what's being learned on college campuses. And um, it seems to the, the people that have done these studies all reach the same conclusion, that there's not much in the way of measurable gains in general skills, critical thinking, complex reasoning, and writing. That is in the liberal arts. You don't get much better than you arrive there. And the reason for that is that people are not focused on teaching you how to read, how to you write, how to read at a high level, how to write at a high level, to be clear, to be cogent, to use reason and logic in your essays. There's not that much emphasis on that anymore. And perhaps that's the reason why people are not making, are not much different when they come out than when they went in. Again, this is in the liberal arts. Obviously in engineering, it's different. Because if you uh, make a mistake in engineering, the damn bridge falls down. But if you make a mistake in judging a public policy, uh, who knows what'll happen. The, uh, this movement, this uh, sort of uh, authoritarian outlook, this leftist outlook, uh, this progressive outlook on college campuses um, that everyone, administrators, other professors have given into, has uh, another problem, which is the cost of college is becoming bizarre. It is becoming just absolutely crazy. You now have state schools, uh, Rutgers, for example, that aren't too bad. They're about $30,000 a year if you live on campus. If you don't, it drops down to 15,000 a year, which is one of the bargains of the century. But for private schools, especially the Ivy League schools, you're now way above 50,000 and you're as high as 70,000 a year. And uh, for that amount of money, you ought to be getting something. Um, you ought to be different than when you arrived. Otherwise, you might as well just walk around the campus three times and go home. So this is an area that should be watched. There's going to be a lot of pressure on colleges and universities to rethink the way they're doing things. And uh, it should be especially interesting now but because, because of the virus. I don't know how many people are actually going to show up to live on campus. I can't think of a better environment for catching a virus than college dormitory or fraternity or fraternity party. Um, maybe we'll have a cure by then for the virus, maybe not. But certainly there's going to be a lot of focus on colleges and universities, and it's going to be interesting to see if they do anything different or they just stay the way they are here. In addition to colleges and the education, I'm also very interested in the fate of Jews in Israel. Um, a lot of people, including myself, think that the way Jews in Israel are treated 
um, says a lot about the world. If after Auschwitz, Jews are still engaged in a lonely fight for survival, it shows you what human nature is like. And it's not a happy feeling when you realize what human nature is like. Now, on college campuses, from one end of the country to the other, from the north to the south, there are people who are saying, uh, basically are demonizing Israel. They're saying that Israel is an apartheid state, for example. Uh, apartheid is an extreme form of segregation that was practiced in uh, South Africa. Uh, the fact that Israel is one of the bright lights of democracy, it isn't, after all, any country that can stay democratic and free and allow freedom of speech when they are surrounded by enemies from the day they started until today. Uh, they say Israel is a apartheid country. They say it's a Nazi-like country, which is particularly galling and very hurtful. But then I guess that's the point of the Muslims and the, uh, uh, the, the, the leftists, the progressives, who want to cause the maximum amount of pain in a Jewish heart. Uh, <clears throat> in, um, in England, at the uh, University of Edinburgh, the um, Edinburgh Student Association recently said they were going to boycott all things Israel. They said Israel is an apartheid state. Uh, they uh, support um, the divestment movement, which means that colleges and universities should divest themselves of any organization, any company that has uh, so much as an office in Israel. Um, and this fellow, whose name is Professor Dennis McGoin, he is talking about this and he wrote a letter to his students and he said, Israel is repeatedly referred to as a Nazi state which is, he says, is pretty idiotic. Where are the concentration camps? Where are the Einsatzgruppen? That's a special group of people that murdered Jews during the Holocaust. The SS, the Nuremberg Laws, the Final Solution. There's nothing like that in Israel. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And Israel, by the way, acts especially well when it's fighting a war. I don't know of any country in the history of the world that I know of who acts as well as Israel acts during a war. In fact, I think they act much too, uh, much too kindly. For example, if they know that there are missiles in a particular building, they will actually call up the people in the building, they learn the phone numbers and stuff, and they will call them and tell them to get out. But of course, if the innocent civilians get out, so will the soldiers. And they'll probably take some of the missiles with them. Uh, they have other methods of warning people. For example, they have what they call a knock on the door. And what they'll do is they'll set off a rocket that will hit the roof of the building because that's where people often flee to so they won't be crushed by rubble. And um, then they'll send uh, like a little fire, a big firecracker that'll go off on the roof of the building they're about to bomb and tell the people get the hell out of there we're about to bomb this. I don't know of any country that does that. I don't even know if Israel should be doing that. I, I have my doubts. Um, now they talk about an apartheid regime which means there are different rules and laws for different groups. It was blacks and whites in South Africa. 
And blacks and whites have different rights. Of course, the blacks in South Africa, until South Africa changed, had a lot fewer rights. In Israel, the Arabs who live there have the same rights as Jews. By the way, 20% of the people who live in Israel are Arabs, Arab Muslims. There's no apartheid there at all. None, zip, doodle. Arab Israelis have the same rights as Jews with one little exception, one important exception though. And that is a Jew from anywhere in the world can go to Israel and they have to let him in. The reason for that is that during the Holocaust, not a single nation would allow Jews to come into their land. And so you even had a ship, the St. Louis, that sailed from Europe down toward America, went around the East Coast, around Florida, and um, was not allowed to let anyone off. In fact, President Roosevelt actually put a Coast Guard cutter on their tail. So God forbid one Jew tried to swim to, uh, I don't know, Miami Beach, he couldn't do it. Um, so the, the, that law is kind of necessary. There doesn't seem to be any other group that if they were being murdered by the millions and millions and millions, a country wouldn't let them in. They even offered, by the way, to stand in Alaska and shiver, but they weren't allowed to do that either. Israeli hospitals treat Jews and Arabs more than that. They treat the Palestinians from Gaza who spend a lot of time trying to kill Israelis. They uh, treat people on the West Bank, the same doctors, many of whom are Arab Muslims, and uh, they do, everyone gets the same treatment there. In Israel, women have the same rights as men, <coughs> which is not something that you can say about the Arab countries. I have a friend of mine who was, went to Israel, and he happened to be in one of those, uh, one of the clinics that they have in Israel. And this Arab guy came up to him and said, can I ask you a question? And he, my friend said, sure. He said, listen, I see a lot of women here. Why do you have women here? And then my friend said, well, you know, they get sick too and we want to treat them. And he thought about it and just said, hmm, and walked away. The idea that you would waste medical resources on a woman strikes many Arabs, many Muslims, as something ridiculous. Um, women have the same right. There's no gender apartheid. Gay men and women have their own, no, face no restrictions. The fact that the gays in the military have their own magazine. I mean, they've been in there forever. They didn't just get to it like some other countries did. Um, anyway, back to where the hell I was. Um, we were talking about Israel and how it's uh, slandered mercilessly on college campuses. I can't quite figure out if everyone on college is stupid, has no intention of learning anything new, or just doesn't care. Nonetheless, Israel is constantly um, being slandered. And it's slandered by LG, L, what the heck is LGBT groups. It's slandered by all sorts of groups. You know what happens to the gays in Iran? They hang them, and their specialty in Iran is hanging the gays from uh, huge construction cranes. That way, the crane can pick the person up by the neck. 
and let them hang there and it's high enough up so everyone can see it. That strikes me as a disgusting situation. But um, for some reason, everyone enjoys yelling at Jews an awful lot and so far that hasn't changed. Um, I do want to report some very good news that many of us who are pro-Israel, I guess you'd say we're Zionists, have been uh, uh, just dreaming about for many, many years. And they also present a bit of a problem here is should we vote for Trump or not? For the first time in American history, the American government is putting pressure on particular universities and colleges not to be anti-Semitic. For the first time, the American government is threatening to take away money from colleges and university if they continue with their anti-Semitism. Believe it or not, they weren't doing a damn thing about it until these threats came about. There's a guy whose name you might remember, I hope, after this, Kenneth Marcus. He's the civil rights chief at the Department of Education. He's a well-known figure in this area of fighting anti-Semitism. And basically what they do is they, they go around to schools that have been, um, people submit complaints about schools and other things as well. They submit uh, complaints about a violation of their civil rights. And what this program does is it penalizes colleges and university deemed to be shirking their responsibility to foster an open climate for minority students. Now, before this, the minority students were considered to be um, black, Hispanic, gays. Now it includes Jews as a protected group. That is, you can no longer uh, attack Jews. You can attack them, but you might lose your federal funding. And the federal funding is really big for college and university nowadays. Now, some people um, have said that um, such a policy could be used to stifle free speech. And uh, people get very enthusiastic about free speech when someone is freely speaking against Jews. Uh, but that's just my cynical uh, interpretation. Um, and you can, for example, uh, anti-Semitism is considered denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination. That is, if you say Israel has no right to exist, you are engaged in anti-Semitism as interpreted by the federal government, Department of Education. And uh, th this is, seems to be having an effect. Uh, the um, Department of Education goes to various schools by the way, they've also gone to Rutgers University, but it takes them a long time. And they are now looking at the North Carolina and Duke University. And what they do is they say, have you made it, have you made Jewish people feel marginalized? Um, and if you have, if you engage in behavior, action, words, uh, demonstration that and still a hostility toward Jews, then they'll take away your money. Now, the reason there's a lot of money involved nowadays is that after 9-11, the federal government decided they didn't know 
what was going on in, in the Middle East. They didn't know what Muslims were thinking enough. So they poured in hundreds of millions of dollars to a lot of colleges and universities so that the colleges and universities could, one, teach languages like Arabic, and uh, also, two, learn more about the sociology, the anthropology, the philosophy a lot of these uh, people had, because it's obvious that we were very surprised to learn that they were that angry with us. Some people don't like it. The American Civil Liberties Union doesn't like this sort of pressure, but I, I absolutely adore it. Um, they, a lot of the college and universities have what they call Middle East Studies departments, where you have people who teach various languages, and you have people who basically uh, give courses on subjects involving the Middle East and the countries, therefore, and their sociology and anthropology and things like that. Uh, they haven't liked this at all, but I've been so happy since this has been happening. And uh, one thing that's kind of nice is that we have a few friends here in Congress, and um, like Doug Lamborn. And what he does is, and he'll be listened to, is he asked the Department of Education to investigate a university for misusing federal funds awarded to Middle East Study Centers under Title VI of the Higher Education Act. Uh, title just is a way of organized federal laws. After laws are passed and are on the books, they're then organized into uh, certain titles, general areas. Title VI happens to be civil rights. And uh, he charges that the university, uh, let's see here, University of California, Berkeley, um, they're spending taxpayer dollars for purposes contrary to those required by Congress when it created Title VI. If you get money from the federal government, you're supposed to uphold certain standards. And one of the standards now is you're not supposed to engage in the anti-Semitic speech, anti-Semitic uh, teaching, and anti-Semitic actions here. And uh, there, there, there's other people too. Representative George Holding, Republican, North Carolina. Denver Riggleman. Republican of Virginia, Paul Gosar, Republican of Arizona, and of course, people who talked about Duke, Georgetown, University of Arizona. And they said that um, a lot of the activities are hostile to Jews. They're anti-Semitic. And um, the only way that apparently we can get these people to change is to threaten them with taking away money. But it is America, and that should work pretty well, I hope, here. Um, a lot of these people who uh, get money um, are actually actively involved in trying to destroy Israel and certainly spend a lot of time um, in, in hostile talk and action against Israel. So that's kind of, that kind of cheers me up no end. And um, It'll be very interesting for me to see what they're doing at Rutgers. By the way, Rutgers seems to be accumulating a lot of people who are hostile to Jews, hostile to uh, Israel. Yeah, I have an article before me. Nora Erekat recounts her anxiety over Israel's existence. 
She's a Rutgers University professor. And she was talking about her activities. She gets together with the communist Israel hater, Angela Davis. You're older than your parents. You probably have heard about her. There are other people that they, she was talking to, Cold, Code Pink, which is hostile to Israel. Students for Justice in Palestine, which is one of the nastiest group of son of a bitches who are definitely hostile to Israel. And um, I hope uh, Rutgers kind of turns their path away from there here and, um, and changes their mind here. Um, I have a couple of little things here that I wanted to mention. You often hear um, in a documentary or if you're on a college campus, uh, Muslims get up and say, look, my father has a key to this apartment, this house, this farm farmhouse in Israel, and yet he's out, and someone, a Jew from Brooklyn, is now on his land. Not exactly. Why would they show their keys? Because they're missing a deed. They don't own the land. Only about 8% of the land of Israel was owned by Arabs, by Muslims. When Israel came into existence, modern Israel in 1948, the rest don't own diddly. They didn't own diddly. If they own the land, they still own the land. And by the way, the, uh, the Israeli courts will back them up on this. I mean, there are going to be arguments, of course, but it goes to the court and they're very objective. If anything, they lean over backwards to be nice to the Arabs, to the Muslims, to the consternation of many Israelis. Nonetheless, if you see someone say, Here's my key to this apartment, and I can't go there. My grandfather can't go there. Ask him, where the hell is the deed? Here's one other thing. Uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, Arab refugees, but no Jewish refugees. How could this be? In 1948, uh, about 800,000 Jews were forced out of Arab lands. And if they didn't move quickly enough, they were hung in the streets. In crowds were told to come out and, and look at this scene. This happened. And uh, anyway, the um, in large part, uh, the people fled because the Palestinian elite that didn't want to get shot would fled. Uh, there were also a lot of people say, look, you leave this area, it's dangerous once we kill all the Jews. And that was their plan to kill every single Jew. They said it out loud lots of times. You can come back and you can have your farm and you can have the Jewish farm next door. Um, there were also some people that were forced away from their, from their house, from their farm. And um, that, that's kind of a shame. It's a big shame. But if they come back and they go to court, they have a very good chance of winning. Um, I just want to mention one other thing. And that's... Lately, you're going to hear, you have heard a lot of talk about Israel is thinking of annexing the West Bank, or as Jews call it, Judea and Samaria. Uh, that isn't the right word. They're not annexing that land. They're restoring that land. Before modern Israel existed in 1948, 
way before and three times by international organizations, Israel were given what was called the land of the Palestinian mandate. That included all of Jordan. At one time, Israel was going to be much, much bigger. That was the Palestinian mandate. But uh, England, which is a little tricky when you deal with diplomacy with them, they gave away 80% of Jordan to people who came from a Hashemite line of kings. They actually came from Saudi Arabia. And the British, which controlled the Middle East at that time, said, here, you can have this area. Um, that was the phone. A bad person called, no doubt about it. Anyway, they... Um, so they gave away 80% of the land that the Jews were supposed to get before anything started. So then there was just a little nubbin, 20% of the Palestinian mandate uh, was left. And so the Jews said, all right, we'll take that little piece. A good offer. It's the best we've had in 2,000 years. We'll settle for that. We'll be at peace with everyone. We'll settle for that. And then the Arabs said, you know what? We want a little bit more land. And the British... Um, they, were, they were interested in Middle East oil then, which Israel didn't have then, and the Arabs did. So they said, okay, what about if we cut this 20% of the land in half? You get 10%, the Jews get 10%. And the Jews said, this is getting tiresome, but okay. We'll take this little, little bit of land, and we'll live in peace with our neighbors, and we'll make the land fruitful, and it will multiply good things, like fruits and oranges. And the Arabs said, F you, and five different countries with five different armies invaded. And the world thought, oh, no, the Jews are going to get it in the neck again. But this time, this time we had what we call weapons. And we fought back, and we turned out to be pretty damn good fighters. And people were rushed into battle. Often they came off of refugee boats. They were handed a rifle and a handful of bullets. That's it. And somehow we made it work. And we won that war, which annoyed the Arabs forever. After the war, by the way, the Israelis said, hey, look, look, look. Let's all live in peace here. Let's spend their money on, on plows and tractors and buildings and houses for poor people. Not, not on armaments. Come on, guys. And uh, the Arabs said, no, we're not going to recognize you and we're not gonna sign any peace treaties with you. However, we will make six substantial tries at killing every one of you. And that's, by the way, what they said, killing every single one of you. Uh, but the, again, the Israelis only got better at fighting. They finally got a few good um, uh, military vehicles and jets, first from France, and then the, France, by the way, cut Israel off right in the middle of the war. But um, now that the United States came in and has become a good friend to Israel, and Israel makes a lot of its own material, darn good material, wars, tanks, uh, submachine guns, machine guns, uh, rifles and such. But they also are still, no matter how you slice it, it's still just six million Jews. And from time to time, they need a little help from their friends, which they reciprocate for, I think. Uh, and the United States has become the main place to get armaments, too.
other countries in Europe, like Norway, have refused to sell the Israelis anything dealing with war, although they don't mind selling it to other people. But uh, a while back, Norway, uh, the Israelis contacted the Norway government. They wanted to buy some ejection seats for jet fighters. Can they make it? Of course, but they don't want to make everything because they don't have enough to, so you get economies of scale. And Norway said, no, we don't sell war materials. Actually, Norway has a thriving arms industry, and they sell um, war materials to just about everyone in sight, but not the Jews. Um, it's hard to get those people who live in cold lands to change. I want to thank you for if you've uh, tuned in and listened. I hope you learned something or enjoyed learning something. And I hope to see you next week. And uh, myself and General Ming will be back. And uh, we'll be talking about some other things that I hope are of interest to you. Thank you for listening.